I imagine that you have um, particular uh, traditions around Christmas. Most people have, have Christmas traditions of one kind or another. When I was small, um, my family had a tradition. We would open our Christmas presents on Christmas Day. But there was a kid down the street, and his family had the tradition of opening them on Christmas Eve. And I always, I always envied him. I thought that they had the better tradition because my family went to church. And they opened presents, and we had to wait an extra couple of hours. So um, so I admired that tradition. I think a lot of people have different traditions around Christmas. Maybe it's uh, the, the time you open presents. Maybe it's who you see. Maybe um, where you visit, things like that. Maybe it's um, you drive around town to look at uh, the holiday lights or, or whatever it may be. There's particular food you always have at Christmas time, things like that. People have different traditions. And our reading today is an example of, of a tradition. It is something that has been passed down. It has been passed down from one generation to the next, um, as as a, a story um, that is that is about Christmas, but it is also also about the second coming of Christ. In fact, it has been fulfilled over and over again. And one of the things that makes it so interesting is that even as a generation can look at it and say, "Well, all right, I see that this prophecy has been fulfilled." They hold on to it and they say, "But I can see there's more still to come." That this this passage of scripture is not simply a promise that that God made and then fulfilled, but a promise that God made and fulfilled that will still be fulfilled in a greater way at some future date. And so they they passed it down not merely as a, as an example of God's grace in history, like you know with King David or the patriarchs, but something that God did and continued to do, uh, continues to do down through the years. So. Our reading, as I mentioned to the children, doesn't have the characteristic elements of Christmas. You know, there's no angels or wise men, there's no Santa Claus or trees or things like that. So all the things we expect with Christmas, none of that is in here. But there is a view of Christmas, a view of, of the coming of Christ, um, both at his first advent and at his second advent, uh, the second coming. Both of those are in, seen here, but they're seen prophetically. They're not seen in hindsight, but looking forward. So the prophet sees these things, and that is uh, why this 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 um, conversation we've been in the last several weeks is called the promise of Christmas, because it is, it is an example of the promises that God made that ultimately are fulfilled in the coming of Christ. So we're looking at the... Um, this particular scripture uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has so much to say about Jesus that he has been called the fifth gospel because there's so much in here about Jesus. But um, the part we're going to look at today um, is particularly um, hope-filled, and so we're going to um, look at this passage. Um, and the um, the nature of it is that is that God has fulfilled these things as we'll see over and over again, not just one time, but but He's fulfilled it in a new and richer way um, over and over again. And the reason for that is that that uh, you can look at prophecy either as a promise about something God is going to do, or you can see it as a reflection of who God is. And this passage in particular invites us to think not just about some particular thing that God has promised to do, but to actually look at it as something that illustrates who God is, what God is like. And so the first observation I would make about this, and the reason that people have held on to this over and over again for uh, 2,700 years, is because it tells us as much about God um, God's nature, God's character, as it tells us about the particular things that God is promising to do. So the first observation I would make if you're following in the, in the um, program is that it is, uh, um, it is God's character 
to raise up things. And we'll see that as we look at this passage. It is God's nature. It is, it is who God is. God is never more faithful to himself than when he's raising things up. And that's useful to remember because it's easy for us to think, well, that's it. I've, I've used up my grace. That, that, you know, that was my third strike and now I'm out. Um, that I have made my bed and from here on I'm just going to have to lie in it. And it's helpful to remember that God's nature is to raise up the things that have that have fallen down. So, so we're going to be looking at this passage um, as an example of that. So, um, uh, what is this passage? Where where does this passage come from? Well, it comes from the prophet Isaiah, who was ministering about 700 BC. So, seven centuries before the time of Christ, he wrote these um, these prophecies. And at the time he was writing, he was probably mostly concerned about the Assyrian Empire that his neighbor to the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, had just been conquered. We talked about this some last week. If you weren't here last week, if you weren't able to to be part of that, then you can catch up online. But the idea is that Assyria is 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 one of the first great empires, and it has conquered the country to the north. And Isaiah is writing to people who are worried that they're going to be next that the southern kingdom is going to be conquered and so they're thinking should should you know should we be afraid because here comes assyria and uh the answer that i say isaiah gives is is no he says strengthen the weak hands steady the shaking knees say to the cowardly uh, be strong do not fear so he says no he says you don't have to be afraid because god is going to do something and in fact um, as we see uh including in the next several chapters he's going to talk about assyria some more he's going to say what happens which is that god um, causes them to turn around they they have already come as far south as jerusalem they've besieged the, the the nation's capital they've surrounded it with their army and they're going to wait out the the people who live in jerusalem and then they change their mind they go back home to nineveh and while they're in nineveh there's a change of government. The the Assyrian emperor is um, deposed, and then there's a, a power struggle among his sons, and ultimately one of them gets the throne. But they never come back and threaten Judah again. So so he's saying, you know, prophecy fulfilled. The thing that thing that God has promised, you don't have to be afraid of. You can have um, uh, your your shaking knees can be steadied now because God has God has promised to relieve the the danger of Assyria. But, but they didn't simply file it away and say, see, God keeps his promises. They said, they, they held on to this. And, um, a hundred years later, uh, Assyria was, was conquered. And, uh, the, the new power on the block, the new, the new kid in the block was the Babylonian Empire. And it did successfully conquer Judah. And when it did, it, it marched all the, the people of Judah off to, uh, exile in Babylon. So they went up into the Fertile Crescent and they were held there as, as exiles, they were held in captivity there, and they were exiles. And so they looked at it, um, and they said, they said that this is something that God has promised to to um, relieve us from, because we saw how He did that before. And so they saw it as referring to their own life. And um, uh, my slides out of order. Ah, uh, oh my. Well then, so in your program, you will see. Um, the uh, the promise there um, uh, in verse 10, he says, The ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. So they saw it as 
as offering this, this fuller thing that, that even though they were never marched off into the Assyrian Empire and they never had to return, they were able to look at it later on and say, wait, there's more to this, that later on when we're conquered by Babylon, we do return. We return to Zion with singing. So they saw it that way. And then um, uh, they held on to it for another five centuries. And then at the time of Christ, when Jesus began his public ministry, people looked at the, minist- the, the miracles that Jesus performed and they said, wait a minute, I'm seeing a whole new way of looking at this passage of Scripture. I'm seeing it as referring to the the miracles that Jesus would do. So then the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame would leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. So they saw it as something that was promising the the miracles that Jesus performed. They saw it as being fulfilled in yet a whole new way in the time of Christ. So so all of these are different ways of looking at at the scripture, and those first Christians said, "And wait, there's still more. This is not just about the miracles that Jesus is performing. It's about what He's going to do when He returns. So, water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of of um, the glory of Carmel, uh, Lebanon, will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon." They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs. In the haunt of jackals in their lairs will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. There's this picture of a complete transformation of nature that, that deserts would become, would become pools of water. So there's this picture that Jesus will actually uh, fix the things that are, that are broken in the world, the parts of the world, the, the natural order that are broken. Um, Jesus will will restore those when he returns at his second coming. So there's this there's this character of it where it it has makes promises, but the promises keep being um, fulfilled. That that it is the nature of this passage of scripture to show us how God doesn't simply promise a particular type of relief. That God is promising um, to to be God, to be Himself, and to continue to raise people up who are in trouble. And so we see this played out over a over a theater that, that expands for 2,700 years, God continues to be at work in this, in this passage. And, and this, this metaphor in particular, the metaphor, he spends so much time talking about parched land and pools and, and, uh, rushes and, and, uh, water and things like that. That's a natural image. For somebody living in the the Middle East in this time, it would have been a natural image because even if you lived in one of the the places that got more rain, you weren't far from a desert. You could could go to a desert with a day's journey pretty much anywhere you were. And so they they knew about the desert. They knew the way it worked. And so it was an obvious metaphor for them. And so they they could look at it that way. And they could say that the desert is is the place of dryness, the place of, of uh, scorpions and, and cacti, they could look at it and say, this is a bad place, but, um, but, uh, God is transforming the natural world. And the Apostle Paul says that that's true, that Jesus, when he returns, that, that until then, all creation is groaning, but when he returns, he will, he will, um, fix what is broken in creation. But, but it is not simply a promise about, you know, pools in the desert. It's, it's, it's metaphorical because the metaphor was so obvious to them because they lived so close to the desert. They could see this as something that referred to the dryness in people's own lives. They could, they could see it as referring to the, the hard, dusty, dry places in their own lives. I used to know a guy, um, uh, in, um, California. His name was Roy and he was an Okie. 
he grew up in um, the 1930s. He was a little kid in 1932 or something when when the Dust Bowl happened. And um, he he remembered, he told me the story about one day his dad and his older brother went out to do something on the farm. And when they came in, his dad was crying. And it was a shock to him because he didn't know his dad could cry. He thought it was something that, that you know, stoic men like his dad were incapable of tears, that it was something you grew out of when you grew up, that, that children could cry, but men like his dad couldn't cry. But whatever it was his dad did on the farm that day, and he didn't know, whatever it was, it broke his dad's heart. The, the, the dust bowl was not simply something outside his dad. It was something inside of his dad. His dad's heart broke. And this metaphor, the metaphor of the, the places in our lives, whether they're outside of us or inside of us, the places where there are dust and dryness and no life, that is a picture of what God will renew. And so the picture here is God is renewing all the dry places, not just the places outside, not just the places in the natural world, but the places inside of us. God is renewing all the dry places. So, that is a promise that we find in this scripture. But there's another promise, and it's one that's a little unsettling because we don't like to use, we don't like to see these words. Here is your God, vengeance is coming, God's retribution is coming, He will save you. We don't like to hear those words. When, when a pastor brings up vengeance and retribution, usually people kind of, you know, buckle down a little bit and it's like, I, you know, let this wash over me and then, you know, it'll be over. Um, we don't like to hear those words. But the idea here is that is that this is not something, the, the dusty places, the dry places in us, um, in, in our world, is not something that God's going to do once. He's not just going to, to fix it. He's going to put an end to the problem. He's going to go upstream and find where the actual problem is. He's going to put an end to sin itself. The, the reason that the world is is broken. God is going to put an end to it. He's going to deal with it with some finality. It's not going to be a recurring problem that God's vengeance is coming. God is not simply rescuing people. God is actually dealing with the problem that caused them to fall. So God's vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. So we like the idea about saving, but what's the vengeance? What's the retribution? Well, we know that Jesus took on the the vengeance of God, that that he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. And he died on the cross, and on the cross, God poured out his vengeance, his retribution on the sin of the world. That that is the vengeance that came so that we could be saved. Christ took on God's retribution. So... What about the next passage? He says, A road will be there and a way. It will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks on the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there. No vicious beast will go upon it, but they will not be found. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. There's this picture of when you leave Babylon, when, when you go from the place that you were to the place where God is bringing you home, you travel on a highway. And Presumably, that's what the exiles did in the 500s BC, is they walked on a road and they could look at it and say, see, God is bringing us home. But Christians, in the light of Christ, they looked at what Christ has done and they said, God actually did something like that with Christ. God actually moved us from the domain of sin and darkness 
to the domain of Christ, that we have been moved from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. And the way we did that is Jesus, who is, as he said, the way and the truth and the life, that he is the path to God. He is the way that we find God and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus himself is the road for the redeemed. And so he says that those who travel on his way, the holy way, will come to Zion rejoicing. So what is Zion? The redeemed will walk on it, the ransom of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Well, again, the, the exiles coming from Babylon, they would have said that Zion was that, that, that destination. We're going to Jerusalem. Zion is one of the two hills that Jerusalem is built on. We're going back to Jerusalem. But we look at it today as something more than that. We look at it today as the heavenly Jerusalem. That, that today we can say where we're going to go ultimately is to the restored heaven and earth. The, the, this heavenly city, the place where, where God is taking us ultimately is the restored world where there is no more sighing or crying. There is nothing but rejoicing and gladness. The former things have passed away and God will wipe away every tear. This is the promise that we have in this passage. So Zion is the place of rejoicing. So, what do we do with this? Well, you know, oftentimes at the end of a, at the end of a message like this, the pastor says, okay, now in light of this, go do this thing, right? You know, stop doing that and start doing this or something like that. It's very common for a, for a sermon to have an application, but this is really just a list of what Jesus came to do. There's a saying, people will sometimes say, Christmas is not your birthday. Right, so get your mind off that present. You've got your idea, you know, you, you know, that is obsessing you. So, so, so we sometimes have that idea. Christmas is not your birthday, and it's true, it's not. But Jesus didn't come for the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. Jesus came for us. Jesus came to do these things to give us these gifts, these gifts of of um, uh, restored, renewed life in our dry places to to give us. Um, a final, a final uh, way of dealing with the sin in our lives, um, and to to bring us to a place of rejoicing. Jesus came to do those things, so there's nothing for you to do. I mean, those are those are like presents, and you can unwrap them or not. It's it's nothing you have to do. So so I would just say that there is no application except except this. I you know pastors try hard to find an application. The application is this: the the imagery here over and over again is this imagery of passing through passing through a, a, a dry place. And it talks a lot about water. And this imagery was used in the early church. Jesus gave us a symbol that we can use to remember all the things he's done. Jesus gave us the symbol of baptism. And the idea of baptism is, 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 um, all through the, the scriptures. We see it when the, when the Hebrew slaves, uh, leave, leave Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea. When they come from the wilderness into the promised land, they pass through the, the Jordan River. Um, over and over again, we see this imagery of water as being the place of salvation, that, that not being the place of, of harm and danger, but actually the mechanism of salvation. Jesus says that the water that he gives people will spring up in them and become um, uh, eternal life. The, the, um, the seer of Revelation looks forward to the river of the water of life um, that flows from the throne of God. We see this imagery over and over again. And in baptism, we're reminded of it. The idea is that water is the, the sign of the salvation that God offers us. So today we're going to celebrate a baptism, uh, actually a couple of baptisms. And if you have not been baptized, 
then I'd like you to talk to me later on because maybe this is something you'd like to do if you understood more about what baptism has to offer and what it what it means for us in the church. If you have been baptized, whether it was yesterday or whether it was um, at, at you know three days after you were born, um, I invite you to take this opportunity to reaffirm the promises that were made on your behalf or that you made at your baptism. So we're going to have that service now after our song. So um, there are responses in here if you would like to reaffirm your own baptism. Let us uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture that um, has so much uh, promise uh, for the the things that we look forward to, but most of all, that the nature of these promises shows us what kind of God you are and how you you um, characteristically raise people up who are in hard places. We pray, Lord, that you would renew the the dry places in us and re- help us to remember through baptism that Jesus is the the road for the, those who that he has made clean through his um, death on the cross so that we may come someday to the heavenly city of Zion with rejoicing. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.